The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Quiet this morning. I'm sorry. Penny. What? For your thoughts. Penny, for your thoughts. Do you have one? I'm sure the replicator will have one on file. Evelyn, may I take off the uniform for a moment? Captain. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, January 6, 2011. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we will be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. And starting off the new year 2011 with a couple of lighter subjects. The existence of God and the existence of the penny. Do we need either? Do we need one and not the other? Do we need the other and not the one? These and many other earth-shaking questions will be resolved by ours end, or at least we'll stop talking about them by then, eh, Robert? The one true God and the one true penny. <laughs> yes. But between now and then, you can call 519-661-3600 to join in the conversation if you choose to do so, or if you think that what you're about to hear is a whole bunch of bunk, by the end of the show today, you can write to tell us that at feedback at justrightmedia.org. How are you, Robert? Did you survive the... The new year. <laughs> Good, yeah. Actually, I'm a little excited for today's show because it's been quite a while since we've been in the studio. It has been, and yet it seems like uh, 10 minutes ago in one way yeah. and a year ago in another way. <laughs> isn't, it, isn't it weird how that always works out that yeah. way? But, of course, before the year ended, uh, the whole issue of the penny came up. Um, I'm looking at some of these clippings from the newspaper. Follow Senator's advice and dump the penny now. Um, survey says drop the copper and things like that. Looked into the penny a bit, found a little bit of history. I know you did too. Yep. Um, I wonder if yours matches mine. I, I went to my, you know, my favorite New World Reference Encyclopedia, looking at the penny. You Are you asking which history is true? Well, no, no, no. Just wondering if if they match, because you were just telling me something off the air. I didn't know about the penny, the Canadian penny. But uh, when I looked up just the definition, it had uh, two actually. First, the British coin, penny, a British coin formerly of copper, since 1860 of bronze, and money of account, which is an interesting term, the twelfth part of a shilling. It was, at first, a silver coin weighing about 22 and a half grains troy, or the 240th part of a Saxon pound. In for a penny, in for a Saxon pound. (laughs) (laughs) Till the time of Edward I, it was so deeply indented by a cross mark that it could be broken into halves. And that was called a half penny. Huh, or a penny. You, and then you could break it again into quarters. And Did you were... realize that a penny actually referred to two cents in Canada at ah, one point in time? That's interesting. Um, but apparently you could also break the penny into quarters too, and they ah. became known as farthings or farthings. Yeah. Its weight was steadily decreased till at last in the reign of Elizabeth it was fixed at seven grains or the 62nd part of an ounce of silver. Copper pennies were first coined in 1797, but copper half pennies and farthings had been coined from 1672. Now that's the British history. United States, the term penny is commonly used for cent, the one hundredth part of a dollar. 
It's a bronze alloy of 95% copper and 5% tin and zinc. That was back in the 50s. Blank copper sheets large enough to cut 100 cents were used by the government, and the mint would cut the sheets into strips from which the round blanks called planchets were punched and these ran directly through the stamping machines. Then they go to automatic weighing machine, which throws out all the imperfect ones. There's a more modern version of this in the free press that appeared just uh, a while ago at the end of the year, December 29th. That's how pennies are being made today. Not much different. Looks pretty much the same as it was half a century ago. During World War II, to conserve topper, copper and tin, the government issued pennies made of zinc with a coating of steel, giving them an appearance similar to that of the dime and partly because of the confusion aroused between the two coins, the bronze penny was restored in 1944. That's the American history. Mm. Now, the Canadian one, I didn't really look into because I, I assume that was the same as the American. Oh, one. no, and no, you, no, no, no. Yeah, you've got a bit there on that, don't you? Well, actually, I didn't bring the history no, of the, the penny just, here, but yeah. something out of uh, while I was reading about mm -hmm. it struck me, and that was uh, part of the Canadian history of currency and of, and of exchange. Uh, we used to use playing cards, at least in old France. Uh, yeah, they ran out of coins. So the so king of the king of uh, France said, "Well, in New France, we're going to be using playing cards, which were stamped with a, a mark." And uh, also, well, I was going to say, it's not any playing card. No, no. <laughs> and around the same time, they um, had a currency called or a coin called uh, the Musketeer. The Musketeer, out of uh, yeah, from the Three Musketeers. <laughs> Isn't that something? Yeah, some strange history of the Canadian coins. I tell you, is very very interesting. Well, of course, I guess the story today is, um, you know, I remember when I was a kid in the 50s, I used to have this 78 RPM record. Name of the song? A nickel ain't worth a cent today. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I still remember that song in my head, you know. Here's another uh, interesting fact about uh, a nickel oh. that I came across was, uh, you remember that victory nickel back, oh, when oh, was yeah? that, the 50s? 50s? 55, I think. 55? Yeah. They had a V on one side and a, bl a blazing torch on the other. Well, I... I noticed there was dots on it. I had no idea, but that's actually Morse code. The dots on that nickel oh. say, um, going from memory here, um, we will win if we fight with willingness, something like that. But it's in Morse code. Interesting. Yeah, a bit of trivia. Well, of course, you've heard uh, a penny for your thoughts, and of course, uh, you could say today a penny ain't worth a cent today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is probably why the discussion has come up. But, you know, I was listening to the to the reasons for eliminating it, and I think most of the reasons I heard are incorrect. Not all. There's, there's some legitimate reasons, but there's a lot of confusion in this, and I think one of the wrong reasons to eliminate the penny is, is the one you hear the most. It costs more than it's worth to make it, right? It costs yes. a penny and a half to make a penny. Well, that would be absolutely true if you only view money as a store of value. If we're making pennies to store value, <laughs> then it'd be kind of a lost leader, wouldn't it? Yes. But that's not what the penny's for. And, um, you know, if that's the argument, then we should be eliminating almost all coin production, including the loony and the toony, because they're not really places to store wealth in that sense. And I have to tell you, you know, myself, I don't keep any coins in my wallet, unnecessarily. So to me, the pennies go in the same jar as the, as the toonies and the loonies and everything else, because they all weigh something, and you don't want to have to carry them around. That was the idea of paper money, to make it lighter, to make it representative. But, uh, of course, all forms of government fiat money have been debased so much beyond their original value. Uh, that's why we're discussing this issue in the first place. It is. But the p penny's basic use is as a medium of exchange. 
And so if you, once you had two exchanges, if you want to look at it that way, you trade the penny once, I trade it back, then we got a two cent deal. Now we're half a penny ahead of the cost of making that penny. That's true. As a matter of fact, Although I, I, that's not the right way to look at it. I'm yeah. just saying that that's just as wrong as the other way, but it would come up with the same kind of result. There was a talk show on uh, last week or a week before when they were talking about this, and I called in and basically made that same point. I pulled out of my pocket during the show uh, to look for the oldest penny I had in my pocket. It was 1955 American penny. Mm -hmm. So I'm figuring, okay, over the, uh, what, uh, 55 years that that penny has been in circulation, how many times has it, has it been involved in a transaction, yeah, thousands, probably thousands of times. Or, or so you got your money's worth. <laughs> or, or how do you know that penny wasn't sitting in a jar for 40 years? <laughs> there could be that too. But on average, I'm sure that pennies yeah. make the circulation several thousands of times, and therefore you're getting your one and a half cents worth out of that penny. Well, you know, I thought about this whole situation, and I thought there's really only one right reason to stop producing the penny, um, and that's basically supply and demand. It's like anything else. The penny only affects cash transactions. The reason people hoard them, I think, is because the government keeps making them unnecessarily, which leads to an mm. oversupply, which means they become less valuable. And, uh, and I know there's people who argue that they hoard, they hoard them because they're not valuable, but I'm not so sure that that's the whole story. Usually when, when something's worthless, people throw it away. They don't hoard it. So there's something. There's, there's well, a it's not area. entirely worthless, no. is it? It has some value, though very, very little. Right. If the penny really was as valueless as many say, then they would toss them instead of hoarding them. But people don't need pennies. They're not being hoarded as a store of value like gold, but really as a way of eliminating a nuisance, I think. And yet, you know, you can't, you can't avoid it. 100 pennies will still add up to a dollar. And I think if you stop producing pennies, they'll either be back in demand, and those penny jars will soon find themselves emptying, or... It would be the same as if we phased the penny out of circulation in the first place if people didn't. How does it, I don't think you have to make a proactive move in this regard. All you have to do is stop producing them if you're producing too many. How do you make change? Well, if cash, you make sure you get those jars, you get those penny jars out. There's a lot of pennies in circulation. They're just in jars and people's jars and where else. Yeah, it doesn't address the problem. How do you no. get that out of the jars, though? Well... Look at, the, look at the solution that they're looking at. They want to eliminate the penny entirely. So what's, what's the difference between eliminating the penny and just leaving it as it is and accepting it when people have it or when they don't? Ah, but businesses have to make change, and businesses aren't hoarding pennies. People are the consumer. That's right. So businesses need pennies, so they go to the bank and say, give us X amount of rolls of pennies so that we can make change. Mm -hmm. So there's the need. I, well, that's a need, and yet that has also been addressed with the suggestion that we'll round up and round down. And, yep, that's and true. that's apparently not a problem in any of the countries that do it. That's true. Yep. And so, to me, it, the whole argument's moot in a way, that we don't need to legislate something or de-legislate something to phase in or phase out the penny. You know, from the penny hoarder's point of view, the problem's not the lack of penny's value to him, but to others with whom he would want to exchange that form of currency with. They don't want it, right? So therefore, he doesn't really need it either. Now, if other people were dying to have your pennies, you wouldn't be hoarding them if, like, they preferred them to loonies, right? I prefer your 100 pennies to your one loonie, which would be possible if there was some value in the penny. I learned something yeah. uh, from uh, but, our mutual friend Paul McKeever. Remember, mm -hmm. he was saying that according to law... Now, if you're listening, Paul, I'm, don't take me... <laughs> I hope I'm accurately recording what you said, but... Um, Businesses don't have to make change by law. Mm -hmm. If you don't have an exact change, they don't have to make change. 
Well, there you go. That solved your previous question, there, didn't it? It, it? it does, actually, yeah. <laughs> the, but then there's a bigger question, a bigger issue. I was looking at Ayn Rand's egalitarianism and inflation, and she made an interesting single-sentence point there. She said, money can, can function only so long as it represents actual goods. And, well, I don't like the word represent, but I know what she means. She means as long as you can exchange it for something. And if you look at it today, a penny by itself... I think is incapable of representing any particular good, isn't it? Yeah, you can't buy days. anything. Yeah. Therefore, it's non-functional as money. It has no function as money. Its only function is well, well, I mean, and except to make that change, it has no function as a means of exchange of its on its own. Yes, on its own. That, when you're talking about change, it's not on its own anymore. It's it's in conjunction with dollars. I agree. And now, of course, you can eliminate the penny. Of course you can do that if you want to, but what you can't eliminate from our money system is the cent, because we are on a decimal system based on one dollar. That's our unit of measuring relative values of the things we use dollars to buy. Mm -hmm. It's decimal. To eliminate the decimal points or to eliminate a digit from the mathematical construct of our very currency would collapse it. You can't do that. So, and you know, there's a lot of businesses that make money. You can make a lot of money just on pennies. Banks do it all the time. Ever, ever hear the phrase, I've been nickeled and dimed and pennied to death, that kind of thing? You know, you, well, you can't say it with pennies anymore. It's not even worth it. But um, I was thinking about a penny. And how much time does a penny represent, really? I took, you know, a thousand pennies is ten bucks, right? Am I right on that? <laughs> and in rounded terms, that would be, what, the minimum, minimum hourly wage in Ontario, around 10 bucks, just, yeah. just to work with easy do dollars? Yeah, sure. So at 10, at, sorry, at 1,000 pennies per hour then, uh, you divide that by 60 minutes, you get 16.66 pennies per minute. And at 16.66 pennies per minute, a single penny would be worth that divided by 60 again, which comes out to 3.6 seconds that's way more than i thought it was worth <laughs> i saw a lady drop her wallet the other day a penny came out of it yeah. and fell right next to the wallet she bent down picked up the wallet left the penny yeah and that penny did it take her more than three and a half seconds to pick it up <laughs> she lost money by that not calculation that probably went through her mind you know and that's what that's what i think of when i go down to, yeah. is it worth bending over to pick that penny up mm. yeah, yeah i know <laughs> well usually it's a matter of how dirty does the sidewalk look <laughs> yeah. uh who who, who you know <laughs> is it beside that little doggy doo-doo thing there <laughs> or did you even want to go near it but boy if it's a dime or a quarter you don't ask those questions too no i pick those up that's exactly right. And, of course, there's the, the, the old saying, if you take a penny and double it every day, you'll be a millionaire, right, within a month. Actually, it's less time than that. It's 27 days. Hmm. I worked it out, did it on the calculator, or click, click, click. Uh, by 27 days, you reach one. This is just doubling a penny each day, right? Yeah. Uh, 1,342,177.28. And after 31 days, you're up at $21,474,000 plus plus change. Yeah, the average CEO salary. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's all they're doing is doubling pennies each day. Um, and, and, you know, all the sayings that have come out of a penny culturally, you know, I, I couldn't think of them all, but you, of course, a penny for your thoughts, which, which we heard. Two cents worth. Yeah, <laughs> your two cents worth. A penny saved is a penny earned. You know, I, I question a lot of these. That, that's not even true. A penny saved was already earned. <laughs> Actually, you know, when you, when you, you think know? about bending over to pick up a penny, yeah. I look at it this way. That's an after-tax penny. <laughs> <laughs> so it's really worth about a, a penny and a half. Yeah, there you go. 
But uh, you know, a penny saved. If you've already if you've already earned it, you've earned it, right? Declare those by not pennies spending it. By not spending it, you don't <laughs> earn it again. Because according to this theory, you'd earn the same penny each day you didn't spend it. Boy, you'd be a millionaire by the end of the month, but you wouldn't know. You'd still have one penny. <laughs> okay. So in for a penny, in for a pound. And uh, you know that was always a popular expression. If you've gone so far on a on a thing, that's usually when you're already in a lost position, right? <laughs> and you've got to go through with it. And you hear expressions like we have to make our pennies stretch and pennies from heaven steve martin see the movie yeah. and um, declare those pennies on your yeah. eyes the beatles or penny where are you <laughs> <laughs> which we're going to hear about just shortly going to take a quick break and we'll continue the conversation after this come on kids keep moving we have to get out of here all right let's go i want us to get out of here as quickly as we can all right children come on now let's Where's your sister? She was riding on the turtle, she in the boot. Then all of a sudden she was gone. Well, where did she go? I don't know. I turned around and she wasn't there anymore. Oh. Don't worry, I'll find her. Penny? Penny! Permission to beam down to Drama 4. What? I have been unable to contact Sarshenka. Data, I appreciate your concern. Transporting to the surface is only going to make a bad situation worse. Sir, I feel it is important to determine the reason for... Come on, Data. Captain, your orders were to deliver the message, correct? Yes. Then, what is the difference between sending the message and delivering it personally? A whopping big one, and you know it. Sir, we have come this far. In for a penny, in for a pound, is that what you're saying, Mr. Data? Yes, sir. Oh, well. Go. And welcome back to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM where you can join the conversation at 519-661-3600. I think we were stretching a penny point there. Oh, that was a <laughs> pun, Bob. That was a real stretch. <laughs> penny, penny. That's from Lost in Space, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. Uh, just to continue the conversation, then, on the penny, we've heard uh, the call to get rid of the one-cent coin uh, from before, uh, and nothing's come of it. There's actually, I don't know if people know that, Bill C-252 is in the Parliament right now as we speak. It's past first reading, I think. But um, it's not going to go anywhere, and I think Stephen Harper said he has no intentions of getting rid of the penny. But anyway, the, while the discussion is academic, it's still an interesting one because it makes us think about our currency and the penny and uh, inflation. That's the, that's the elephant in the room. There, that is it? the elephant in the room. And while I, Bob, I, I, I don't really care one way or the other whether we keep the penny, but mm -hmm. I am curious as to the reason why some are asking for its calling in. And that phrase, by the way, is the legal term in Canada for when a coin is removed from circulation and is no longer legal tender. It's called called in. And is that actually what they're calling for, to actually get rid of the penny 
totally? Or? For its calling in, yeah. And so not even to have a penny, not just not produce them for a year or two, but... Not to have it anymore. Not to have it at all, yeah. okay. Now, that's the standing, uh, the Senate Standing Committee on National Finance actually put out a report just in December past, and the committee's report clearly identifies that the need to call in the penny is the loss of its value that is experienced since the coin was first domestically produced in 1908. Prior to that, it was produced over in, uh, in England. Now, in that year, one Canadian dollar was worth 20 of our current 2010-2011 Canadian dollars. 20 times. Cumulative inflation since 1908 is 1,826%. Or, to put it another way, the penny and the dollar have lost 95% of their value since that time. Now, this reduction in value to the point where it is no longer worthwhile to, as I said before, bend over and pick up a penny you may have dropped, is the cause for hoarding it. At the end of the day, more and more of us throw our pennies and sometimes the rest of our devaluing coins, like yourself, Bob, into a container at home and wait until they accumulate enough to make it worth our while to redeem them at a bank for larger denominations. Since there is still a need for pennies that we discussed before, this hoarding forces the Canadian Mint to continue to produce about 75, I'm sorry, 750 million pennies every year at a net loss to the government, not the Mint, of about $5 million a year since it costs approximately 1.3 cents, according to the Mint, not 1.5, to uh, strike a single one-cent coin. Now, the only reason there remains a need for pennies is not the fault of business per se and the need to make change. It is because we have sales taxes, which are calculated as a percentage of a transaction, requiring us to make change, often involving pennies. Without sales taxes, I'm willing to bet that most sellers would price their products so that change would not require pennies. For example, selling something at $19.95 without sales tax, would only require a nickel as the lowest denomination of coin used mm -hmm. in the transaction. Nickels, dimes, and quarters are easier to roll and handle than pennies, and therefore it would cost businesses less in handling charges at the bank. So I'm quite convinced that if we didn't have the sales tax, we wouldn't need the penny, or at least as much as we uh, do today. Now, this recommendation... It would certainly give the retailers a way around it without having to count would. on that penny. It would, right. because I don't, don't, don't know if people realize it out there, but when banks take their money their coins to the, uh, I'm sorry, when businesses take their coins to the bank, banks often charge fees mm -hmm. for handling such coins, and they certainly charge fees for distributing those coins to small businesses and big businesses. Now, the recommendation to eliminate the penny comes with another recommendation from the committee, and that is to round all cash transactions, either up or down, to the nearest nickel. I have a better idea that would require no rounding at the till at all. And I have yet to hear this out there. I did a Google search on this word and the penny in Canada. Nothing basically came up in the news. And that is, re-denominate the currency back to its 1908 value and keep the penny, which will now, have, now be valuable enough that we would no longer need to hoard it. Redenomination would work like this. Parliament would pass a law saying that a new printing and minting of a new Canadian dollar would have a value 20 times what the current dollar has today. We would have a year or two to redeem our old dollars and pennies and quarters and dimes mm -hmm. and nickels for the new dollars at the bank. 
You would bring in 20 current loonies, for example, and get back in return one new Canadian dollar, which would now have a purchasing power 20 times what the old dollar had. Likewise, the new pennies, nickels, dimes, and quarters, would have purchasing power 20 times what the old coins had. This new currency would have the word new stamped or printed on it and would be easily distinguishable from the old currency. Chaos you would sue, ensue, you say? No, not at all. Many countries have had to re-denominate their currencies with no effect whatsoever on their economies. Europe essentially did it when the member states adopted the euro. And that was a far more complex thing than what you're, what you're oh, recommending indeed. because what you, were, you have to coordinate all the different economies of the various states. Yeah, determine the exchange the rates. Yeah. So historically, however, denomination has had a bad rep. As well it should because it is an admission of failed government inflation policies. Weimar Republic Germany had to do it when inflation got so out of control it took one trillion Papiermarks to buy a loaf of bread. The German government simply redenominated the Papiermark into the new Rentenmark. Did this get rid of inflation? No, not at all, of course not. But you no longer needed a wheelbarrow to carry your money to the grocery store. Now, the brutal regime of Robert Mugabe's Zimbabwe has had to redenominate its currency four times since 2006 alone. The last time was in February of 2009 when one trillion third Zimbabwean dollars bought one fourth Zimbabwean dollar. Hmm. I realize the Bank of Canada's inflationary policy is not as bad as Robert Mugabe's, but it is not unheard that currencies have redenominated with a much smaller factor. Consider that the German mark ceased to be legal tender in only 1999 when the euro was introduced and was completely removed from circulation in 2002. One Deutschmark bought 1.95 euros at the time. The human mind has a limit when it comes to intuitively understanding very big or very small numbers. The fact that an average house in Toronto today can cost half a million dollars is a staggering amount to get your head around. Can you envision what half a million of anything looks like. I know. It's, it's, you can't. You can't. I mean, if I showed you half a million uh, coins, it also, or I showed you 10 million coins, you probably wouldn't know which, you know, the, 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 what, how much of a difference there would be in them. Be, it's just a staggering amount of your mind around. And that makes you an easy victim for more government inflation and taxes and things like that, because you don't even care anymore. You exactly. <laughs> oh, so this house costs half a million dollars, or $500,000. Now, if they just upped it by $5,000... Now it costs uh, $505,000. You'd figure, oh, that's not much of a different difference. Mm-hmm. $5,000 is a huge difference, but it, it doesn't seem to be that because it's sort of part of that half a million dollar figure, which you can't really get your head around anyway. That's right. Now, the, because of that, because of this inability to intuitively understand big and extremely small numbers, I, I think that's another argument for redenomination. In, two, in 1908, back when the first domestic penny was made, houses sold for, guess what? What's that? A thousand bucks. A thousand bucks would buy you a very decent house back in mm-hmm. 1908. A much easier number to understand. People knew what a thousand of anything was. Much easier than half a million. And also that was on the upper end of something you would buy. A thousand right. was a lot, and a house wasn't... You know, it wasn't many bigger things in a house that you would get. That's true, yeah. A basket of groceries may have cost you five bucks, ten bucks. The Toronto Globe cost three cents in 1867 mm-hmm. upon Confederation. Three cents did buy something back then. Mind you, uh, the Globe, I think, was two broadsheets at the time. Mm-hmm. 
So um, today in newspaper, what what it costs you at the stand about two hundred and fifty cents, two dollars fifty cents or so. So two hundred and fifty when before, confederation it costs three. Well, now, there's a lot more pages in the paper today. Now that's true. <laughs> Mostly advertising. <laughs> Still the same. <coughs> of course, we wouldn't really be having this debate about the penny if we had real monetary reform, mm -hmm. which would involve things like getting the government out of the business of printing money and allow a return to private banks issuing private currency as they did as late as 1944 during the war. Private banks issued currency. Mm -hmm. they, they did for quite a long time. A return to a common standard like the gold standard would be nice instead of having faith in the government declaring that valueless pieces of paper have value. Ultimately, Parliament should pass an amendment to the Constitution to restrict Parliament from passing laws respecting the economy. What I like to think of the separation of, of not the church and the state, but the economy and the state. Right. It's not the purpose of government to affect the economy. It's the purpose of government to protect your, your freedom, to protect your life, your liberty, your property. Mm -hmm. Not to say that, oh, the, the, the value of money is this now and the value of money is that and we need an inflationary policy so that people can go out and spend so that we can afford to have our pensions and our CPP and our old age security. You know, those things get out of it. The government does not belong in the economy whatsoever. But I think that's just wishful thinking on my part, unfortunately. Uh, in the short term, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> fiat money is fiat money, and whether we pay our debts in pennies, 50-cent pieces, or paper bills, it's academic. The whole point is, as you said, Bob, moot. Mm -hmm. But at some point in our future, the Canadian government will have to re-denominate our currency. I say, why don't we do it now and save the penny? I agree. I, th I don't think that's such a bad idea. And then we, you know, we're, we wouldn't be saving the penny, though, because it would still have to be exchanged, wouldn't it, for a new penny? Oh, <laughs> okay, so say, say, get rid of the old penny, let's have a new penny. That's right. <laughs> that it? That's it. I okay. think we've got a break coming up well, here at yeah, the bottom of the hour. Let's take a break, and we'll talk about a different kind of redenomination on the other side <laughs> of the break. We'll be back right after this. Mr. Sulu, if you want the mathematics of this, Mitchell's ability is increasing geometrically. That is like having a penny doubling it every day. In a month, you'll be a millionaire. Boris! Yes. Oh. Where are you? I, I bought you a present. What? Oh, what? You know those earrings you always wanted, the, the long ones? Thank you. Cousin Boris. Twice removed. By tomorrow morning, I may be removed completely. What is it? You look so worried. Uh, Sonia, are you scared of dying? Scared is the wrong word. I'm frightened of it. It's an interesting distinction. Oh, if God would give me some sign. If he would just speak to me once. Anything. One sentence. Two words. If he would just cough. Of course there's a God. We're made in his image. You think I was made in God's image? Take a look at me. You think he wears glasses? Not with those frames. Nothingness. Non-existence. Black emptiness. What'd you say? Oh, I, I was just planning my future. <laughs> Woody Allen, eh? Love it, love it. Wasn't that in something? <laughs> yeah, uh... You're listening to CHRW 94.9 FM, 519-661-3600, number to call. 
caught a couple of letters in the free press just before, well, during the holidays, actually. One the day before Christmas, one the New Year's Eve. And they happened to be about this subject. And the first one, I probably wouldn't have dealt with this if I hadn't seen the second letter being a response to the first one. And the first one was, God May Not Exist, Letters to the Editor, London Free Press, December 24th, by Robbie Smink, which I thought was a masterpiece. I, I can't really disagree with anything I read in this letter. And he says, regarding Mir Shahib's Islam view column, My Dilemma, Does God Exist, December 4th. Sahib claims to have found his answer in mathematics and the theory of probability, stating the orderliness of the universe could not have happened by randomness, ergo there must be a creator that started existence. It seems obvious to Sahib and millions of others that the universe could not have created itself, that something can, be serendipitous, something can serendipitously come from nothing. Sahib therefore cannot get beyond the assumption that at one time there was nothing except a God who then created all that we know and is responsible for the orderliness, quote-unquote, we see in the universe. In other words, there was non-existence until God created existence. But there can be no such thing as non-existence since non-existence is an oxymoron. Doesn't it make more sense to say that existence has always existed, to believe that the universe has always been here and will always be here makes more sense than to believe that non-existence is a possibility. Therefore, we do not need a God to explain the existence of existence. There can be nothing else. Excellent letter. Thank you, Rob, for that. Yeah. And then on another excellent letter, actually, by Dave Plum, but one that disagrees with him, but places the argument beautifully in contrast. And I just thought, and I disagree with a lot of this, but uh, this is his letter, and, and, the, and the heading on that was Existence of Supreme Deity, Simply a Matter of Opinion. Dave Plum, December 31st, Free Press Letter to the Editor. And he responds that in the letter God May Not Exist, Mink states non-existence is still uh, something, an oxymoron. Isn't that like saying apple is not a fruit, it's a word? I have never understood the conflict between creationists and evolutionists. Seems to me the existence of life violates the second law of thermodynamics. If the universe really is strictly controlled by the forces that the present state of scientific enlightenment say control it, so-called immutable laws of physics, there ought not to be life, regardless of how one believes it came to be. We can arrive at whatever belief system suits us through the quote-unquote logic of mind games, cobbled together with what we perceive to be proven facts. The one thing of which I am certain is that what we do not know far surpasses what we do know. As Mark Twain put it, the trouble with the world is not that people know too little, but that they know so many things that just ain't so. If we all kept sufficiently open minds as to allow that maybe the other guy's beliefs have, have as much truth in them as our own, we might come closer to achieving peace on Earth. Oh, dear. Interesting letter. Mm -hmm. Now, I think these two letters juxtaposed side by side provide for us a micro-contrast of, of a macro-debate, <laughs> if you want to put it that way. One side believes in something, existence. The other side believes in nothing, non-existence. Now, I have long argued that believers in a deity, and particularly in creationism, must first believe in nothing. That is, that non-existence is a possibility. Because it's from this point forward that the contradictions and irrationalities of, of what a lot of religious belief are based on start. You know, the very, if you think about it, the very concept of non-existence presupposes existence. You, you would have to say non-existence exists. Yes. And that is oxymoronic. It, it, right. It does make, makes no sense it, whatsoever. It, it, can't, it can't be a, 
a thing. It can't be that if, if you're literally meaning non-existence. In order to say that something does not exist, one must first have a referent to that something, mm-hmm. right? The very idea of non-existence is predicated by the fact of existence. Yes. Okay, so you can't, you can't have a non-existence. Now, identities and consciousness can cease to exist. States of being can cease to exist. But being itself, the supreme being, no. Existence itself can never cease to exist. Existence exists and always has and always will. There's no such thing as non-existence. Ergo, there can be no such thing as creationism. That is, the creation of something out of nothing, out of non-existence. And there's literally nothing else to say about the folly of creationism. I think it's, it's nonsensical. Any subsequent debates like evolution are irrelevant distractions from the main point. Whether one believes in evolution or not, it's got nothing to do, pardon the pun, <laughs> with the doctrine of creationism. The very notion of creationism means a creation of existence from non-existence. It means nothing else. It implies nothing else. It means something from nothing. And that's irrational and unreal. To adopt such a position would actually require the abandonment of knowledge and of reality. There ain't no such thing as nothing, honey, because if there were, wouldn't that be something, right? <laughs> and, you know, Mr. Plum refutes the argument that non-existence is still something, an oxymoron. Isn't that like saying apple is not a fruit, it's a word, he says. Well, it no, would be. No, it's not. No, it would be if there was no evidence whatever of an apple. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? But words mean something. And all legitimate concepts are referenced to something physical in reality. Something for which evidence exists. Words that relate to non-real concepts are fantasy words. God, angels, Martians, Santa Claus, Captain Kirk do not exist in reality, okay? They are fantasies. However, they could be symbolic or representative of something that is real. They are concepts. Yes. So, uh, but here comes the fatal argument, writes Mr. Plum. Quote, I have never understood the conflict between creationists and evolutionists. It seems to me the existence of life violates a second law of thermodynamics. There ought not to be life, etc. Well, first, until he mentioned it, no one brought up the subject of evolution. Not once in Mr. Smink's letter did the word evolution appear. He never brought up the issue of evolution. Mm-hmm. Nor, you know, it just wasn't there. So why is he bringing this up? So at this point, I'm, I'm thinking, well, Mr. Plum is no longer refuting Mr. Smink's argument, but is touting his own subjective and religious viewpoint. The writer offers no logic or evidence to support his statement other than his intrinsic belief that life violates the laws of nature, <laughs> which, talk about denying reality. I think we're all going to disappear into puff of yeah. logic soon. Mm. <laughs> now, I mean, if that were so, we wouldn't be here now. And it's been my observation that life seems to be an inevitable consequence of existence. This is why the inevitable discovery of life outside our planet will not only be an impossibility to true believers, but would utterly, utterly destroy their argument. However, not being disciplined by reality, they would just argue that life on other planets was similarly impossible and it ought not to exist. Therefore, some magic deity created th- that life out of nothing. Uh-huh. Okay. Some magic deity which right. exists. Yes, which exists. <laughs> and has always existed. Right. And, again, and again, we come back to nothing. A belief predicated on nothing can only amount to nothing in the end. Isn't that the way it goes? But Mr. Plum is not satisfied with mere injury to reality and reason. He goes out of his way to insult him. Quote, we can arrive at whatever belief system suits us through mind games and proven facts. The one thing of which I am certain, he says, is that total knowledge of existence is impossible. And he knows it. He knows it. (laughs) (laughs) With what does he know it, I wonder? Yes, that's it. That's knowledge, right? Another demonstrably false argument. One does not require total knowledge of the universe to validate the knowledge we already have and that we are building upon. 
It is this knowledge upon which we base any of our valid opinions. If we couldn't be certain of our knowledge, we wouldn't be able to do anything on this earth. How does he think a radio or a television works? Just, Why did he get out of bed does that it, morning? Does it work? Does it, does it every day? Doesn't he? Does he think the principles of, of reality are going to change on Thursday? <laughs> you know, I don't know. It's hard to say. Uh, he doesn't believe in evolution. He doesn't believe in knowledge. He must believe radios and TVs were created out of nothing, and he's certain of it. <laughs> but uh, you know, the knowledge we already have refutes any notions of creationism. In fact, if you look in the scientific literature, more and more. Uh, astronomers are coming out realizing, well, you know, the universe was always here. The Big Bang was not the beginning of the universe. It's just a phase in the universe, etc., etc. And then comes a personal insult. If we all kept sufficiently open minds as to allow maybe the other guy's beliefs have as much truth in them as our own, we might come closer to achieving peace on Earth. Isn't it amazing how someone would take an opinion like existence exists and think that that would lead to war on Earth? <laughs> or that that, and that's literally what yeah. you get. You know, I'm thinking, well, what is wrong with this thinking? And uh, you know, he says we we have to believe the other guy's beliefs have as much truth in them as our own. Well, he, but he's already said there's no way we can know this. How do we know truth if there's no way to know it? Right? How, how does one discern truth without knowledge if you've already dispensed with knowledge? The very fact that he took up his pen to write that letter refutes his argument. I, I think so. And I'm just you know, how wrong can you be? How is it possible to ignore? how false this conclusion is. Does he honestly believe that his view and Smink's are possibly reconcilable in any way? Reality versus non-reality, existence versus non-existence, reason versus faith, objectivism versus subjectivism, good versus evil, these are all completely opposite principles and lead to opposite values. This creates conflict. It doesn't create peace on earth. When Plum uses the term open mind, he means and make no mistake about this. He means open to irrationality and to falsehoods. We should have our minds open to any piece of BS anybody tells you. Because that's how you get along with your people. Your BS is just as yeah. valid as anybody else's. That's exactly right. So Wrong. I'm going, oh, God, pardon the pun, please save us from people with open minds. <laughs> Interesting, isn't it, how open-minded people like this are not open-minded about, about objectivity and about reason? On this, their certainty is completely certain, and their mind is closed. Just as the word evolution never appeared anywhere in Smink's argument, amazingly, the word God never appears in Plum's argument. Here he is making a case for God. Not once did he come right out and explain why he believes in God. He made it clear he doesn't believe in reality or reason, so are we to assume that this is his criteria for believing in a deity? We don't know. He never says anything like, well, God exists because. Not once. Because, of course, he can't. And even if he attempted to do so, by his own non-reasoning, whatever he were to say on the subject would have to be dismissed on the grounds that any knowledge about God is, in, is not possible. <laughs> right? Open mind and all that. It's clear that the editor at the London Free Press, when he wrote the heading, Existence of Supreme Deity, Simply a Matter of Opinion, seemed to have concluded that that was Plum's message, and I agree wholeheartedly. Consider the implications. If the existence of anything were simply a matter of opinion, existence wouldn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> no matter, you know, you'd have to be ba totally based on blind faith. So no matter how you look at it, the it's a non-argument for existence of a deity. It's all about nothing. It begins with nothing, ends with nothing, and it's really a big zero. And that's all I've got to say on that. We'll take a break. That was something, Bob. Okay, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be back after this. You know, I used to think that the universe is a random, chaotic sequence of meaningless events. But I see now that there is reason and purpose to all things. 
What happened to you? Religion, my friend, that's what happened to me. <laughs> because I have just been informed that it's going to cost Elaine the sum of $5,000 to get the apartment upstairs. $5,000? She doesn't have $5,000? Of course she doesn't have $5,000. So she can't get the apartment? Can't get it. So she doesn't move in? No move. So you see, it's all part of a divine plan. in the Church of England. Ah, well, the word modernist is code for non-believer. <laughs> you mean an atheist? No, no, Prime Minister. An atheist clergyman couldn't continue to draw his stipend. So, when they stop believing in God, they call themselves modernists. <laughs> How could the Church of England suggest an atheist as Bishop of Bury St Edmunds? Well, very easily. The Church of England is primarily a social organisation, not a religious one. Is it? Oh, yes. It's part of the rich social fabric of this country. So bishops need to be the sort of chaps who speak properly, know which knife and fork to use. <laughs> the sort of people one can look up to. So that's what Peter meant when he said that Canon Stanford's wife was eminently suitable. Of course. Yes. Is there really no other possible candidate? Well, not really. There are a couple of better jobs available recently, you see. What's better than a bishop? A rook? Oh. <laughs> Very droll. <laughs> No, well, the Dean of Windsor is a better job, or Westminster. Such preferment enables one to be on intimate terms with the royals. So being a bishop is just a matter of status? A question of dressing up in cassocks and gaiters? Yes, <laughs> though gaiters are now only worn at significant religious events, like the Royal Garden Party. <laughs> well, the church is trying to be more relevant. To God? No, of course not, Prime Minister. <laughs> I mean, relevant in sociological terms. So, the ideal candidate from the Church of England's point of view would be a cross between a, a socialite and a socialist. Precisely. <laughs> just interrupt. Uh, mm. May I give you the career details of Canon Stanford? Yes, please do. Well, after theological college, he became chaplain to the Bishop of Sheffield. He moved on to be the diocesan advisor on ethnic communities and social responsibility. He also organised conferences on interfaith interface and interface between Christians and Marxists and between Christians and the women of Greenham Common. <laughs> then he went on to be the university chaplain at the University of Essex, then vice-principal of a theological college and is now, as you know, secretary to the disarmament committee of the British Council of Churches. Has he ever been an ordinary vicar of a parish? Good <laughs> heavens, no, Prime Minister. <laughs> Clergymen who want to be bishops try to avoid pastoral work. Saying is that Canon Stanford is a political troublemaker. Well, not exactly, but it could be a thorn in your side on several issues: strikes, public expenditure on welfare, inner cities, unemployment, defence. It's interesting, isn't it, that nowadays politicians want to talk about moral issues and bishops want to talk politics. <laughs> and he'd speak with the authority of a bishop and as a member of the Lords. He designed a new church in South London, and on the plans were places for dispensing orange juice, family planning, and organising demos. <laughs> But no place for Holy Communion. <laughs> Are you serious? Uh, well, there was a dual-purpose hall in which you could hold a service. And the church approved this? Well, of course. You see, the church is run by theologians. How do you mean? Well, theology is a device for enabling agnostics to stay within the church. 
<laughs> I don't want Cannon Stanford. What am I to do? Well, you could turn both candidates down, but that would be exceptional and not advised. Even though one of them wants to get God out of the Church of England and the other wants to get the Queen out? <laughs> well, the Queen is inseparable from the Church of England. Okay. What about God? <laughs> I think he's what's called an optional extra. Welcome back to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 <laughs> FM. And don't forget to go to our website and have a look at all of the, what is it, 181 shows that we have archived yeah. there. That's uh, justrightmedia.org. So we were talking about God and existence, and I'm going to continue the debate because I'm going to talk about a book that has recently been published by Peter Hitchens, brother of the more famous, I would say, Christopher Hitchens. If one accepts Bob the axiom that existence exists, he is well on the way to understanding why there is no God and move on to more important, satisfying areas of thought. It, uh, it's interesting to me as a student of psychology to find out why someone who had called himself an atheist would re-embrace religion. And this is why I picked up Peter Hitchens' book, The Rage Against God. So I'm going to call this segment, hmm, The Rage Against the Rage Against God, or maybe <laughs> The Rage Against Atheism, I don't know. But Peter Hitchens is a British author and journalist who has worked for the Daily Express and has published, published four other books. Now, I wanted to know why and how Peter Hitchens became an atheist. And after being schooled in religion in England in the 1950s and brought up in a Baptist-slash-Anglican family, he re-embraced religion. I wanted to hear some rational arguments for this rejection of atheism, as I knew that Hitchens was well-versed in all of the arguments against God that his brother Christopher espoused. Upon reading the book, I discovered that Hitchens was an atheist in his youth from the age of 12 to his 40s, I imagine, not out of some metaphysical understanding of existence or non-existence, but, but from pure, rebellious, juvenile delinquency, to use his own words. As I was to discover in the book, Peter Hitchens, more or less by his own admission, was not an atheist for any good reason other than he came to hate everything about the establishment of British society at the time of his upbringing. He loathed the idea that Britain's faith in God was tied to Remembrance Day ceremonies, for example. He falsely associated a belief in God with everything he saw to be wrong around him, politically, sociologically, and psychologically. Later in the book, he admits that his atheism was actually a pretense. So he wasn't even an atheist to begin with. Okay. So this book is so a So there was a no conversion. The <laughs> <laughs> book's a bit of a fraud, actually. Yeah. Hitchens became a socialist, a revolutionary Marxist, a Trotskyist, like his older brother Christopher, by the way, and replaced the authority of God with the authority of the state. He later changed his mind on politics, as he has uh, on atheism, embraces what he might call today true conservatism or traditional conservatism. He is most definitely a social conservative today, although he, cr he critiques the British Conservative Party in much the same way that I have critiqued the Canadian Conservative Party on this show. The point is that it's difficult <clears throat> to believe that Hitchens ever was an atheist in the sense that most people understand the term. He came to it out of rage, anger, and fear. Fear of becoming like his parents, of living in the suburbs, raising kids, and mowing lawns, or shoveling driveways today. He did not apparently come to atheism 
out of a considered process of study and understanding, but out of a knee-jerk reaction to mediocrity. How then did he become once again to believe in God? In his 30s, he began to have a sense of nostalgic loss for the Britain he grew up in. He had a love of Gothic architecture and began visiting churches in Europe and actually believes that today's architects could not compare to the ingenuity of the architects of the dark and middle ages. Unbelievable. I guess he sees no beauty in the skyscrapers of New York or creativity in, for example, the Guggenheim Museum. Mm-hmm. He loved his old paintings and on a visit to the Hotel Dieu in Burgundy, France, he came upon a uh, polyptic called The Last Judgment by Roger van der Veen of the 15th century. Now this actually, this little bit here is the key thing about his entire book, okay. about his conversion, so-called. I quote him, I did not have a religious experience when I saw this painting. Nothing mystical or inexplicable took place. No trance, no swoon, no vision, no voices, no blaze of light. But I had a sudden strong sense of religion being a thing of the present day, not imprisoned under thick layers of crime. Uh, Seeing the images of naked souls being cast into hell, Hitchens became acutely aware that there was an afterlife, and he, because of his juvenile misdeeds, was going to go to hell. Unbelievable. I quote him again. I had absolutely no doubt that I was among the damned, if there were any damned. And what if there were? How did I know there were not? I did not know. (laughs) I could not know. No doubt I should be ashamed to confess that fear played a part in my return to religion, unquote. What a letdown. It turns out that Peter Hitchens' conversion back to religion was his latent fear of damnation in an afterlife he could not disprove. Mm-hmm. It goes right back to those letters we just discussed. Yeah. I expected much more. I had hoped for much more, but should have realized I was to be in for disappointment when in the introduction to his book, he says... I harbor no ambitions to mount a comprehensive rebuttal to, of the arguments of such prominent atheists as Professor, Professor Richard Dawkins or my brother Christopher. The book is not a total loss, however. The reader is able to understand better how a true believer like Hitchens can have such hatred for atheists. It stems from a personal self-loathing. In the first third of his book, described he described his own misdeeds from, get this, the burning of his Bible at the age of 12, which, by the way, was a gift from his parents, to drug use and arrest, his love for the Soviet Union and international socialism, his realization that his youth was not only misspent but possibly harmful to others, instilled in him a great guilt. Apparently, the only way the guilt could be expunged was by a return to the Bible that he had burned in his youth. Despite his irrational and emotional rage against atheism, Hitchens has many insightful observations about the great change in Britain. This is a valuable part of the book, I think, because mm. he was a, a very renowned journalist and covered wars and was very well-traveled uh, in very violent areas of the world. Once Britain was a homogenous society with traditions, pride, and a clear moral center, now it became a self-loathing, multicultural morass of left-wing, immoral, politically correct Islamic terrorist lovers. The recounting of some of his exploits in the Soviet Union and Somalia, for example, as a journalist, are frightening. Yeah. He also brings up interesting distinction, uh, distinction between atheism and anti-theism, 
which he accuses, quite rightly, his brother Christopher and Richard Dawkins of being. Of course, Christopher actually quite openly prefers to be called an anti-theist rather than an atheist. Now, unfortunately, his inaccurate description of atheists as vain, bragging, arrogant, hateful, remorseless, brutal socialists may have described a young Peter Hitchens, and perhaps even his brother, but it certainly doesn't describe any atheists whom I know, and I know many of them. The list of people who have gone from atheism to belief is very, very short. And as much as Peter Hitchens wishes us to believe, he is not one of them. He apparently has always held rational beliefs, and his conversion back to Anglicanism is no conversion at all, but a rekindling of his true irrational nature. In one sense, I consider the book to be intellectual fraud. And since he has successfully published four books before, I hesitate to say that the publishing of The Rage Against God is an attempt to cash in on his much more popular brother's success as a best-selling author and renowned anti-atheist. But I'm inclined to think that that's exactly what this book is, a cash-in on Christopher Hitchens' popularity. It may be a lot of that. And, you know, I've always looked at books like that to actually see the other point of view, to see what... That's why I picked it up. That's, to see if there was something there. And I often find things of value, even with a book I strongly disagree with. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the common themes you always hear is about, you know, just, just in closing, the idea of disorder in the universe. You know, oh, that, yes. that, that that proves the existence of a deity. And I'm thinking that there's no such thing as disorder in the universe. That's a subjective term. <laughs> Completely subjective. It depends on what your purpose is. Just like the Seinfeld clip, you know, there was order in the universe <laughs> when, your, when your purposes are being fulfilled, but not otherwise. If you're, if you're, you're having a bad day, there's disorder in the universe. <laughs> and that's the end of our day today. I guess we've got to go. Let's head out, and we hope that you'll join us again next week as we continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, hey, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right. And be right back here. See you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. We don't. There are people in this theater who believe in Jesus, and there are people in this theater who don't believe in Jesus. And there are people here that believe in Allah, and there are people here who believe in Muhammad. And there's some guy right now in Times Square and 42nd Street with a bullhorn going, God's a golf club! God's a golf club! <laughs> and we laugh at that guy. But what if we get to the afterlife and God's a nine iron? It's like, bullhorn Johnny was right! You know, I could have slept in all those Sundays. And no wonder why Tiger Woods is so great. Right, then you get to heaven and God's a golf club. I'm like, God, you're a golf club. Why don't you give us a sign? He's like, give you a sign? I, I put a guy in the middle of the busiest intersection on the planet with a bullhorn. Was that too subtle for you? 